you're not, you're going to start this week. Amen? Amen. Well, for these messages, we've been using the prayers of the apostles that are recorded in the epistles. They're such great texts for this sermon series, but they are not, as we've just said, a text. They give us language. They give us language. You know, the, the scripture says sometimes we know not how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit helps our infirmities. And we're thankful for the heavenly language that God has gifted us with to pray as the Spirit directs. But if you're not praying in a heavenly language, here's the heavenly language. It's written on black on white paper. And as you ask the Holy Spirit to anoint it to your heart, it becomes for us language that we can pray as the apostles prayed and let that prayer go directly to the Father. And then we could be assured of answers. How many of us want answers to our prayers? Who wants to expend time in prayer and not get those prayers answered? Amen. We want answered prayers. And these are the prayers that will mature us and grow us up into Christ. We're, we're not to be babes all of our lives. We need to grow up into Christ. And we can't do that without the proper nourishment. It comes from the Word of God, and it comes from communicating with God. Not just reading, but allowing the reading of that to become warp and woof of our very person, of our very spirit, that God integrates that Word into the fabric of our lives. And it becomes part and parcel of who we are. So this morning, we want to look at Christ's, as we pray for Christ's inheritance in us. Or I should say, praying for an understanding of Christ's inheritance in us. And for the last Sunday, we're going to look at this text that hopefully some of us have memorized in Ephesians 1. Verses 17 through 19. Praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you might know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who... And now, Father, we pray that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would speak to our hearts. Let your word run swiftly this morning and be glorified we say we have hearts to hear feet that are swift to do your bidding that you might be glorified in jesus name amen amen i know that by the text that i chose for last sunday which was easter sunday as you may recall it may have appeared that we were concluding this series but I was just taking advantage of that wonderful text because it was so perfect for Easter. 
we've been looking at these three petitions of the Apostle Paul where he prays that the Ephesian Christians would come to know that the eyes of their heart, the eyes of their understanding would be enlightened to know three what's. Number one, what is the hope of his calling? And then last week, because it was Easter, I jumped to the third one. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead? That is almighty power. And it's the kind of power that God wants us to have and to know in our lives. But we skipped over the second petition and that is what is his inheritance in us. And I know there are some Bereans in this church who were thinking to themselves last Sunday, I can't believe that pastor is cheating on us. And he talked about what is the hope of his calling, but he never talked about what is the glorious riches of his inheritance in us. You know, that's an interesting phrase because we so often as believers focus on our inheritance in Christ. As Christians, we have been given a rich, rich inheritance in Jesus Christ. Paul reminds us of that, uh, of that to us in that statement in chapter 1. Remember that statement? It's one statement there are no commas, there's no punctuation, but it's 12 verses long. And we find in verse 11, in him also we have obtained an inheritance. So there is our inheritance in Christ. And if any people ever get excited about a rich relative passing away because they were told, when I go, you're in my will. So you're excited about what the reading of that will is going to be because you know you have an inheritance. I want you to know that if all the wealth of the world were given to you in that inheritance, it could never compare to our inheritance in Christ. And we walk around as paupers when we've been given such a rich inheritance in Christ. But Paul is not focusing in this passage on what our inheritance is in Christ. Rather, he is focusing on the inheritance that God has in you and in me. He describes it this way. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. I don't know about you, but that just absolutely amazes me. This God who is all in all, who possesses all, who is so rich in every which way, he says, I have an inheritance in you. Now, if that seems like a foreign concept to you, it really dates way back into the Old Testament, whereby we read in Deuteronomy 32 and verse 9, but the Lord's portion is his people. We are his inheritance. And God has promised 
Why are we his inheritance? Because God has promised an inheritance to his son. And we read about that in Psalm chapter 2, where the scripture tells us, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, this is the Messiah speaking, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. We, the church, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, are the fulfillment to the passion and the heart of Father God to give a bride to his son. That bride is the reward of his sufferings because Jesus was willing to say yes, because Jesus was willing to comply with the desire of the Father that those that he created would not be lost eternally, but that they could be brought back to him. Someone had to pay the price. Someone had to die for those sin. For the scripture says, the soul that sinneth must surely die. So Jesus said, Father, I will pay the price. And he willingly went to the cross for you and for me. But God said, Father, God said, son, if you do that, I will reward you for your sufferings. And you and I now, as the body of Jesus Christ, are the reward of the sufferings of Jesus Christ. That reminds me of my favorite missionary story that I once heard about two Moravian missionaries back in the 1700s who sailed from Great Britain to the country of Africa. They had no prospect of ever returning to their homes or to their families. None whatever, but they were still willing to go. And the only way that they could go was by giving themselves over to the same slavery so that they could be a witness to those that they wanted to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to. So they boarded that ship early that morning, and as that ship was departing port and sailing away from the shoreline, there was a cry that was heard from that ship. It echoed into the atmosphere, and there was a loud voice that was heard by those that were waving goodbye, and this was the sound of that voice. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his sufferings. I wonder if we could just have a little smidgen of that kind of passion, of that kind of fire in our hearts and in our lives as we live as Christians. Do we have that kind of desire to see the lamb who paid such a price to receive the reward of his sufferings? Those missionaries certainly understood the prayer of the Apostle Paul, that God was to have an inheritance and that inheritance would be in those who were blood-bought and blood-washed. And again, this God who is all in all, yet he wants an inheritance and he's only most glorified when the church becomes that inheritance 
that one day he could present as an unspotted bride to his son. You know what the scripture says in Ephesians 3.10? This is the plan of God, the mystery from the ages that was revealed in the day of the apostles, that it would be through the church the manifold wisdom of God would be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realm. Last Sunday, we talked about the heavenly realm, the he heavenlies. There's a lot of, act there's more activity going on in the heavenlies than is going on in this little planet Earth. Because in the heavenlies, there's a war for warfare that is raging. There's God against the forces of evil and against the forces of darkness. And God is saying that through my church, I want the rulers of darkness to see my manifold, my variegated wisdom. You know how the variegated wisdom is manifested and made known? We are all different. We cut we're cut from the same cloth, but we all have different families of origins. Behind our face, there's a, a different story, a different set of circumstances. We come from different sinful backgrounds. We have had different bondages in our lives. But when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ and he washes us in his blood and his spirit comes in and changes us and by the wisdom of God, he recreates us into a new person, into a new creation. We then become one who is to the praise and the honor and the glory of God's great name. In the past, we had lived to glorify Satan and to glorify the powers of darkness, but now as sons and daughters of the Most High God, God says, I want to show you off, you as my inheritance. I want you to be that which declares and displays my my genius and my glory in recreating you. And in Ephesians 2 and 10, the Apostle Paul speaks of that glory and grand grandeur of the church. The church, that is the crown, the creative genius. When God says, for you are my, my handiwork, the King James says, you are my workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Now, I know that many of us think, yeah, where is handiwork? I mean, look at how he created us. I mean, I don't know the last time you looked in the mirror, maybe you didn't like what you saw, but if you stopped for just a moment and thought about what you saw, you are a masterpiece of God's unbelievable genius to create us out of the dust of the earth and then to breathe his spirit into us that causes us to live with a person who can think, who could feel, and who can will, that is magnificent as all of God's creation is, whether it's in the heavens, whether it's on the earth, whether it's in the earth and the deepest waters of the oceans, nothing can compare to the masterpiece that the apostle is speaking of here, you and me. And again, it's, it's not this body. But I just want to pause for a moment 
because it just absolutely amazes me how God created us with eyes to see and ears to hear and a mouth to speak and then he gave us a brain that's the computer that controls every movement, every word, every thought of our being. And just by way of aside, I've got to share this picture with you that just is such an exquisite representation of the master genius and artistry of God. Do you see what you're looking at? That's not artwork. That's not something that someone with a uh, paintbrush painted. And I know sometimes abstract art looks something like it, but that is a human cell. And the caption under this picture when I saw it said this. This isn't a painting. It's instead the most detailed image of a human cell to date. It's been obtained by radiography, nuclear magnetic resonance, and cryoelectron microscopy. I think I'll have to ask Dr. Peterson what all of those words mean. But just think the design in just one microscopic cell of our human body and in this human body there are 100 trillion of those cells and every cell has a different design a different structure a different formation I mean that's pretty unbelievable is it not but as glorious and as unbelievable as that is, God says, you, the redeemed of the Lord, you who have been bought by my blood, you who are indwelt by my spirit, you are my masterpiece. You are the display of the riches of the glory of my grace. Because... You've been created in Christ Jesus. See, God could speak the worlds and the universe into existence. God could form us out of the dust of the earth. But when he breathed the spirit of life, not in Genesis, but the spirit of the living God came into us and raised us out of the dead, for we were dead in our trespasses and our sins. We were hopeless. We were without God. But God, who is rich in mercy, even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, and he gave his life for us so that we might become his workmanship. Do you know, in the original language, that word is poema. What word does that sound like? Poem. Poem. A poem is a literary work of art, is it not? But I love how the Passion Translation picks up on this word. When it translates this verse in this way, we have become his poetry, a recreated people, that will fulfill the destiny he has given each of us. For we are joined to Jesus, the anointed one. Even before we were born, God planned in advance our destiny and the good works we would do to fulfill them. 
Why? So that we might be to the praise, to the glory of his great grace. God has crafted an exquisite work of art. It's called grace in each and every one of us. So that today we could be a reflection of Jesus. That's the only way God gets glory. Did, it, did we know that? I hope we're not confused on that point. Some of us are so concerned, well, I, I want to do something for God. God says, before you do something for me, you need to be something for me. And who you are to be for me is the reflection of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you get up in the morning and you, you say to yourself as you look in the mirror and you breathe this prayer, God, what do you have for me today? You know what God's answer is? My plan for you today is the same plan it was from the day I saved you, that you would be conformed to the image of my son, and that every day we grow more and more into the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a glorious, magnificent revelation this is to our hearts, the eyes of our understanding being enlightened that we might know the riches of the glory of his grace in that inheritance that he has in you and in me. Now the point this morning is not theology. The point this morning is not, oh, now I have a better understanding of why God saved me. The point is, how does this truth impact us? How is it going to change us? How are we going to live differently? Well, it begins with this, an understanding. God's inheritance in us has everything to do with us understanding who we are to God and what we mean to God. Do you understand that his inheritance in us has everything to do with how God sees us and how he feels about us. In this petition that we're looking at this morning, it screams of one thing, and that thing is God is passionate about you. If God has everything that he could ever want, hope, or dream for, and he has, he says, I don't care about any of it. I care about one thing. And that is those that I've created, that they become my inheritance because I'm passionately in love with them. Sadly, I believe the reality this morning is there are those of us in this church, those of us who are watching by web stream, who need the fog and the darkness lifted off of our minds so that we could see who we really are are to God and what we mean to him as his inheritance. Have we really taken in the truth of all that it means? The reality of being God's inheritance? His passion for us? Can we wrap our minds around John 15 and verse 9? As the Father loved me, I also loved you. 
Scripture is so clear that God the Father and God the Son love us as much as they love each other. I don't know about you, but that is something to soak in until it becomes inculcated into every fiber of our spirit so that we no longer walk around with any kind of doubt, with any kind of confusion. Oh God, you're disappointed in me. Oh God, you, you don't love me. Oh God, you don't care for me. God loves us unequivocally, unconditionally, now and forevermore, period. That will never, ever, ever change. The extraordinary love of God that he had for his son, Jesus declares that's the same love with which he loves us. And what does the scripture tell us about Jesus' love for his bride? We read those sentiments in Song of Solomon, chapter 4 and verse 9. And just in case you think that that's just some kind of marriage manual, you've got the wrong interpretation. I know it's a beautiful love story, but it's not a marriage manual. It's an allegory that pictures for us the beautiful represent, representation of Jesus, our heavenly bridegroom, and how he is in passionate pursuit after his bride. And what does it say in Song of Solomon 4 and 9? The bridegroom is saying to his bride, you have ravished my heart. You have captured my heart. I have eyes that are only for you. I mean, can you imagine that? I have eyes that are only for you. I love how the Passion Bible translates this verse. For you reach into my heart. With one flash of your eyes, I'm undone by your love, my beloved, my bride. You leave me breathless. I'm overcome by merely a glance from your worshiping eyes. For you have stolen my heart. I am held hostage by your love and by the graces of righteousness that are shining upon you. I wonder how many of us have honestly ever thought in a million years, does Jesus really feel that way about me? Yes, he does. His word tells us so. And then we further read. What is his heart in Song of Solomon, chapter 7 and verse 10? But now it's not his voice. It's the voice of the shepherdess, lover, who says, I am my beloved's. But listen to this. This is the confession of her heart. His desire is toward me. Do you and I walk in our lives as Christians, as sons and daughters of God, with the understanding that Jesus' desire is toward us. That when we get up in the morning, his eye is toward us. His ear is attuned. Is my beloved going to speak to me? Will they allow me to sing a love song over him or her today? That's the heart of God for you and for me. I know sometimes you feel like, oh, I've got to have my devotions. Oh, I, if I don't spend a few minutes in prayer and reading the Bible, I'm going to feel guilty all day long. You've got it all wrong. God has called us into an intimate 
compassionate love relationship with him. And when we draw nigh to God, he runs toward us. He can't wait to reveal his love. He can't wait to lavish us with his grace. He can't wait to sing over us a love song. So many of us are walking around with this fog and this darkness over our minds. We're walking around with condemnation. We're walking around with guilt over past sins. Have you confessed those sins? Have you repented of those sins? Have you forsaken those sins? Then they are buried in the deepest sea. And God's word says there is no fishing in God's sea of forgetfulness. Stop digging up the past, forgetting those things that are behind, pressing forward toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. His desire is toward me. He wants us to grow in a relationship of love with him. How often do we meditate upon this reality that we are truly God's favorites? You say, God has millions and millions of children and he's not partial. No, he's not partial, but it's still possible that I am his favorite and you are his favorite. For when he hung on that cross, he had you on his mind. He had me on his mind. He saw us individually because it was my individual sin that nailed him there. And as God, he was able to see me. He was able to see you. He was able to, to understand that he was providing forgiveness for each and every one of us. We need not only to, to grapple with that in our mind, we need to declare it. We need to declare it not by feeling, but by faith as we come boldly before the throne of God. And as Misty Edwards, and I, I love this song that she sings, Here I am, Lord, your favorite one. What are you thinking? What are you feeling? I've got to know. Do we come before God like that? Do we come before God with that kind of confidence? Here I am, your favorite one. May God give us a spirit of revelation. May God flood our hearts with that light so that we understand that his desire is toward us. And we are his favorite one. See the theme of this prayer. And actually the next prayer that we're going to look at is all about the incomprehensible love of God. This needs to be the very foundation of our lives. We're going to spend probably more than one week in Ephesians 3, but I want us to read this prayer this morning to just give us a foretaste and a little glimpse of what God's love is like. And so the Apostle Paul says in verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Why? That you being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth 
and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Oh, what riches are in that passage of Scripture. Paul doesn't want them to know this with their head. He wants them to experience it. Paul wants them to know the truth of this reality of God's great love that we can never fully comprehend or fully understand. And I want us to bask in that truth as we soon bring this uh, message to a close and to soak in those simple words, oh, how he loves me. Familiar with that song? It was a song that was written by John Mark McMillan. He's not so great a known Christian artist, but his song became hugely popular when the David Crowder band sang it. You know, uh, John McMillan only has about 20,000 fans, but David Crowder has like almost a half a million. But when David Crowder sang it, it became hugely popular, but few people really know the story behind it because when John wrote it, he never in a million years would have dreamed it could achieve the level of popularity that it did. Because the reason the song came into being was he needed to have a little talk with Jesus. He was in a situation where his heart was crushed and broken. He lost his best friend, who was Stephen Kofi. He was a youth pastor with Morningstar Ministries, and he was tragically killed in a car accident at 23 years of age. You know, losing your best friend has to impact you in a very dramatic way. It's earth-shattering. Where do we turn when we're in those earth-shattering situations that tear our hearts in pieces? And we don't know how we're ever going to take the next step or go into the next day. We go to God, of course. <laughs> I remember the story, if I could just deviate for a moment. When I was growing up in the Camden Church, the Maselli's came to pastor our church. And Sister Maselli, the pastor's wife, told the story of how she lost her mother in a house fire. Tina Maselli was the oldest of, I think, 11 children. Her mother perished in a house fire. Tina was left to raise those children. And someone said to her, Tina, aren't you bitter for God allowing your mom to be burned to death in a house fire? And she said, bitter with God? He's all that I have right now. And if I didn't have him, I don't know how I could breathe another breath. And that's kind of like how John felt when he heard the news that his friend Stephen was killed. In that moment, he knew the reality of the words in Romans chapter 8. But they weren't just words. But now they were a reality. And he could say, so now I live with the confidence that there's nothing in the universe with the power to ever separate us from God's love. I'm convinced that his love will triumph over death, life's troubles, fallen angels, or dark rulers in the heavens. 
There's nothing in our present or future circumstances that can weaken his love. There is no power above us or beneath us, no power that could ever be found in the universe that can distance us from God's passionate love, which is lavished upon us through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we need in our time of sorrow, in our time when we don't understand, in our time when there is no reason, no rational understanding for us to embrace. All that we can do is cling to the rock of ages and know that our God loves us and that it's all working together for good. But here's the significant part of the backstory to this song that I want you to know this today. That the song was written because Stephen, the morning that he was killed, was in a prayer meeting and he prayed these words, I'd give my life today if it would shake the youth of the nation. That's pretty sobering, isn't it? God heard his prayer. And I believe he prayed that prayer with all of his heart. Because as I read more about Stephen Kofi, his friends knew that he would not live long because he often spoke about this feeling that he was not long for the world. So he lived with such a passion that every day was important to live for Christ and to be all for Christ. And he would often speak about that verse in the Gospel of John, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. So unless a seed, if it stays in the package, it remains a seed. But once you put that seed into the ground, it sprouts up, not only as a flower, a plant, but on that flower and on that plant are thousands of seeds. Thousands of fruit that are born. Little did uh, Stephen Kofi know, by giving his life in sacrifice, this song would be written that has reached millions of people that has touched and transformed millions of lives. And here's the verse that is not part of the song, but John wrote it as his personal tribute to his best friend. I thought about you the day Stephen died, and you met me between my breaking. I know that I still love you, God, despite the agony. See, people, they want to tell me you're cruel. But I know if Stephen could sing, he'd say, it's not true. Because you're good and you love us. Oh, how you love us. And this is the song that resonates so deeply with people. That touches them into the very depth and core of their being. Because it gives them images of God's love that is so passionate that is so real it's not religious it's real it was the price of his blood that was paid because of his great love and so the words of this great song are 
that we're going to listen to in a moment. He is jealous for me. He loves like a hurricane. I am a tree, bending beneath the weight of his wind and mercy. When all of a sudden I am unaware of these afflictions because they're eclipsed by glory, and I realize just how beautiful you are and how great your affections are for me. Oh, how he loves us. Oh, how he loves us. How he loves us all. We are his portion, and he is our prize, drawn to redemption by the grace in his eyes. If grace is an ocean, we're all sinking. So heaven meets earth like an unforeseen kiss, and my heart turns violently inside of my chest. I don't have time to maintain these regrets when I think about the way he loves. Oh, how he loves. Let's bow our heads this morning as we listen to this song together and let the love of God, the revelation of that love, pour into our hearts this morning. <laughs>